So, Jay, I know this is a little outside the X umbrella, but what's Rick Jones's deal? Rick Jones? Sidekick Supreme? Well, yeah, but just in that weird fight-based world in that one Excalibur story, right? Oh, God, no. Dude, 616 Rick Jones has kicked for half the Marvel Universe. The Hulk, Captain America... I thought Cap's sidekick was Bucky. Right, who was also briefly Rick Jones. Oh, uh, okay. Who else? Two different Captains Marvel. Well, that's at least consistent. Oh, and action figure marketing vehicle, Rom Space Knight. What?! I'm J. Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 129 of J. and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Or, as the case may be, it's Britain-based spinoffs. Oh, but such fun ones. We're finally on the cross-time caper, aren't we? We are. Now, the cross-time caper, okay, so the last two episodes, we covered the first part of the New Mutants Asgardian Adventure— and the first part of X-Factor's Judgment War, and Excalibur's kind of doing something similar. A really, really long storyline that's going to take them away from their usual status quo. Right, this is what, a 12-issue arc? 13, although one of those issues is a fill-in, so I guess 12. So yeah, we have big ongoing stories going on in all of the X-Books, except for the main one, X-Men, which is a bunch of other stuff under no unified arc. Also, this one is a misnomer. The cross-time caper does not, in fact, take place across time. It takes place across universes. Cross-time caper sounds pretty cool, though. It does. It trips off the tongue in ways that, like, multiversal caper does not. Yup. Now, the cross-time caper is a controversial story because while people generally love Chris Claremont and Alan Davis's run on Excalibur, this story goes on for a really, really long time, and the pacing is kind of uneven. Now, for me, that really works. I enjoy the hell out of the story, but I can definitely understand how for some people, they would wish that Chris Claremont and Alan Davis just got on with it already. You know, I am with you on that. I feel like this is a story that's episodic enough that the overall length matters much less than it might otherwise. It's got enough novelty to keep it sustained. It's got enough embedded plots to keep it sustained. It's got enough sort of smaller arcs within it that it really doesn't feel bogged down to me. It's really, really fun. And in a lot of ways for me, and I think for a lot of readers, kind of the definitive Claremont Davis Excalibur. Yeah, it reminds me a little of Exiles or even later on Greg Pak's Extreme X-Men. Like it's a dimension hopping book. And so once you accept that as the premise, like you can enjoy the rest of it. If you're not into dimension hopping books, then, well, you have about a year's worth of Excalibur to get through. Well, it's, you know, either of those books with about one eighth of the angst. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, there is some angst, but not that much. Yeah, because this is fun and it's whimsical and it's Excalibur doing what it does best, which is wide eyed, wondrous farce. Yes, indeed. With a lot of, you know, topless Captain Britain jokes. <laughs> so... Speaking of Excalibur, let's look at our current lineup. So our current lineup is actually still the launch lineup, which is to say British characters Captain Britain and Megan and former X-Men Phoenix, which is to say Rachel Gray slash Rachel Summers. She's still Rachel Summers at this point. Yep. And Nightcrawler and Shadowcat. So they've been based in England, but they actually just got back from New York City, during which time Captain Britain's power and Megan's control over her power started to mysteriously fade. While they were in the States, Widget, who is a weird little robot head that they had found, swapped an English train with its equivalent from a Nazi reality powered by a dragon in the locomotive, bringing Nazi Excalibur across after it to retrieve the plane and its erstwhile comrades, Mara McTaggart and Callisto. And so our Excalibur and Nazi Excalibur had a big fight and eventually did come to a standstill and a truce, everyone agreeing to swap everything back and forth. 
But of course, it didn't go that well because Nazi Maria McTaggart, who's a jerk, because presumably, you know, she's a Nazi, threw a bomb at the train and Phoenix freaked out and energized the robot head widget and the train just disappeared from reality. So currently on the team, we've got the members who you mentioned. We've also got Alistair Stewart, who is a scientist who runs around with them and is, of course, named after the Doctor Who character. We've got Lockheed, who is Kitty's very small purple dragon friend. And we have a thus far nameless, much larger purple dragon who was powering the Nazi locomotive and who requested sanctuary on Earth 616 since it had essentially been enslaved by Nazi Excalibur. That sentence you said actually sums up the general feel of Excalibur really well. Yeah, no, I love doing Excalibur status statements because they're like Glossolalia. They're fantastic. They really are. And so, yeah, this story starts very cleanly because Excalibur and their companions have just vanished from Earth-616 to appear somewhere? Cleanly save for a few interpersonal ensnarements because Excalibur has two love triangles going on. If you've been keeping count of the members of the group, that's enough to encompass all of them. So Kitty Pride, Shadowcat, has a giant crush on Dr. Alistair Stewart. Who in turn has a giant crush on Phoenix. And who in turn has a subtextual giant crush on Kitty. Yeah, we'll see more and more of that as time goes on, of course. In the meantime, Captain Britain and Megan, their relationship hasn't been going so well, largely because Captain Britain is kind of a self-absorbed jerk. He is, and Megan's world largely revolves around him, and that's a bad combination. Meanwhile, Kurt is somewhat languishing in unrequited affection for her that appears to be mutual, although neither of them has quite been able to bring themselves to actually act on it. So we have wacky interdimensional stuff. We have uh, various love triangles. We have superheroes from both sides of the pond and a mysterious bug-eyed robot head who's teleporting them around randomly. Yep, that's Excalibur. And now we've got a young knight sporting a bowl cut, sunglasses, and a Sony Walkman riding his horse through a forest and complaining about how boring 1989 is. What a perfect way to open an Excalibur story. Like any Excalibur story that opens with, wait, what? Is probably doing it right. God, I love this book. He is supposed to be on a quest, um, which he is not super happy about, but it's traditional, and he notices as he proceeds into the forest that the fairies around are restive. I thought at first that these were the preservers from ElfQuest who have cameoed in X-Men before, but I think they're just normal fairies. They do look a little like preservers, though. There are enough ElfQuest cameos that I generally find it safe to assume when in doubt that it's probably one. So our Walkman listening young knight is just, you know, going through the forest when all of a sudden reality rips open in front of him and a giant Nazi train crashes into a tree. Because, yeah, Excalibur. It must be Tuesday. Uh Uh-huh. Now, Kitty is thrown from the train and she is unconscious and being guarded over by a very concerned Lockheed. And that's what catches this kid's attention because he's a knight. And you know what knights are supposed to do? Get their asses kicked by teeny tiny dragons. Because Lockheed, of course, is ridiculously badass, and that's the sort of thing that happens. Now, Lockheed effectively disarms the knight and knocks him on his ass. Meanwhile, the rest of Excalibur manages to break out of the train, all somewhat dazed and pretty excited. Captain Britain's uniform is in tatters, so those of you playing along at home by rogue rules can take a drink at this point, since Captain Britain takes that role in Excalibur. And the kid wakes up to Lockheed with his dukes up. That's actually one of the things I really enjoy about Lockheed is just how human his mannerisms are. Like, and when he starts smoking a cigar later, that'll just be even more so. He doesn't start smoking a cigar. He starts stealing Pete Wisdom's cigarettes. Oh, that was it. I don't know if he smokes them, but yeah, he's great. (laughs) He is especially, especially hostile to anyone who has romantic designs on Kitty. Mm -hmm. He's very protective. Which actually kind of rings true if you go with the dragons as lizards thing, because like, 
I know iguanas will do that. Yeah, uh, your parents' iguana, your mom's iguana. Oh, yeah, iguana. yeah. Well, he's, it, unfortunately, my mom's late iguana now, uh, uh, yeah. Dirk, who just absolutely hated my dad. But that's apparently really common with iguanas. They will decide that a person is their mate. And even if they don't actually make any sexual advances on them, will engage in displays of dominance with anyone who appears to be super close to that person or romantically entangled with them. Wow, now I'm just imagining Lockheed in that iguana enclosure that was at your parents' place. I don't think he'd be very happy, but I, he would I just also sit there think that languidly probably... eating hibiscuses and stuff, hand-fed oh, to him. Dirk was a good iguana. He was kind of a prima donna. He totally was. You were a good iguana, Dirk. May your legacy live on forever. <laughs> yes. But regardless, yeah, so the kid wakes up and immediately recognizes, he thinks, Captain Britain as a dude named Captain Marshall, Lord Champion of the Realm. The late Captain Marshall, I believe, who appears to have returned to life before him. The kid himself, as it turns out, is named Prince William, or as his friends apparently call him, Billy the Kid. I don't think anyone's friends actually call them that. Nobody called me Miles the Kid when I was a kid. Yeah, no. That's a dumb nickname. No one actually does that. Like, that's the kind of nickname that a newspaper gives to a criminal because they appear young. I kept expecting the Theoretically. fact that... <laughs> right. I kept expecting the fact that this kid is called Billy the Kid to, like, mean there were going to be some, like, Wild West overtones to the story, but nope. they're totally not. It's just nope. a random thing. So Billy the Kid is immediately smitten with Kitty. He's head over heels, and he inquires to her comrades whether she might have a sweetheart waiting for her at home or something like that. To which Nightcrawler responds, Last I looked, nary a one. And Captain Britain says, Lockheed eats them. And Billy's horrified. And man, I really love when Captain Britain and Nightcrawler get to be bros like that, because so often their relationship is defined by the whole Megan love triangle thing. But really, they have a lot of fun when they're not, you know, hating each other for various reasons. Excalibur in general is pretty collectively good at deadpanning when it gets going. Now, speaking of Megan, she has turned into like this being of pure light and is dancing around with the fairies. She feels better than she's ever felt before. Like this land is apparently made of magic and that agrees really, really well with her. Less overjoyed is Alistair, who is examining Widget with a magnifying glass, trying to figure out what's up as Kitty stares longingly at him and he stares longingly at Rachel. Unfortunately, all collective longing is upset when a giant squid creature attacks from the sky. Right, apparently this is something called a shaitan, which is a big tentacly red smoke demon that uh, Billy the Kid recognizes. And it manages to kidnap Kitty. She helps free some of her other comrades it was also trying to get, but she is taken far, far away. The fairies lead Excalibur to the creature's lair and to its master, who is a punk rock leather daddy ogre wearing a tiny t-shirt that says butch and a lot of studs and like collars and stuff. For whatever reason, in this world where we're going to spend like a little under two and a half issues, all of the ogres are dressed as some combination of punk rockers and leather daddies. And I don't know why, but it's immensely charming. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> They're really delightful. And Butch himself has a collection of princesses in jars. Well, um, he's got one. Now he's got two. Right. Well, two counts as a collection. One might have been a, a coincidence or an accident, but two. Two is clearly a collection. And I, <laughs> I don't know that quote quite well enough to paraphrase it well, but you know what I'm going for. I feel like Oscar Wilde is somewhere deeply disappointed in me. I mean, I'm pretty sure Oscar Wilde is deeply disappointed in all of us. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he is. And so Kitty asks the princess, You're really a princess? Of course. Are you not? Nope. I'm an American. I just love that as like a, a label for some reason that Kitty's so very proud of. And just then Excalibur arrives to save the day, by which we mean to challenge the ogre and see Captain Britain get punched straight through a wall. Did you see the look on his mug? Oh, I do so love being a villain. 
Unfortunately for the ogre, Phoenix is also along and is being drawn by Alan Davis. So we get the gag of Phoenix immediately then punching the ogre through the wall at the exact same angle and in the exact same panel layout as the ogre punching Captain Britain two panels previously. Yeah, we saw that in the early Excalibur issue where the juggernaut was fighting Captain Britain, right? The same kind of thing. And it just never stops being funny. Alan Davis is such a good visual comedian. He really, really is. And uh, now Captain Britain, you know, heads back to confront the ogre um, and explain to him the rules of civilized combat. Hardly sporting, old chap. There are rules, you know. Gentlemen, do not use feet. As Captain Britain kicks the ogre. Or elbows. As he elbows him. Or knees. As he knees him. At all times, they fight fair. There's a reason, you see, why this is called fisticuffs. I love Captain Britain right here. Like, Jay, you were mentioning when we were talking about this earlier that Captain Britain's success in a given situation seems to be contingent upon his willingness to embrace, like, the genre trappings of the genre he's in, and I think you're totally right. Absolutely, and to run with the silliness. When he tries to be dignified, he utterly fails. When he's willing to be wry, when he's willing to play along, that's when he starts winning fights. In the meantime, Billy the Kid is rescuing the princesses, well, the princess and Kitty anyway, and Rachel and Megan are fighting a monster— So as this is going on, Billy the Kid is rescuing the princesses, well, one princess and Kitty. Phoenix and Megan are beating this weird lake monster thing. The castle is just getting beaten all to hell in the midst of this. Or, as Kitty terms it, instant air conditioning. Excalibur style. Or X-Factor style, for that matter. Really X-Men in general, just superheroes. Superheroes are really, really hell on infrastructure. I really hope if any superheroes come to Portland, they at least stay out of our neighborhood. And the areas where we work. I'm pretty good with living in a generally fairly superhero-free city. (laughs) That's true. We've got Bagpipe Vader, and I feel like that's about as super as Portlanders get. That's adequately super. He's pretty goddamn super. He rides a unicycle and plays flaming bagpipes and wears Vader helmets or whatever else is seasonally or pop-culturally appropriate. Sometimes there's a Gandalf costume. Sometimes there is. He came to Pete's Fest. I remember that. That was pretty great. With his bagpipes, it was great. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I think that's the only time I've ever described bagpipes arriving at a thing that I've been at as great. But yeah, no, it was lovely. So anyway, after the castle completely collapses due to the various violences being inflicted, everybody is okay because, you know, thankfully Phoenix is good with the whole telekinesis thing, and the princess just throws herself at Billy the Kid, thanking him. But his heart, as it turns out, is pledged to another. And he finishes off the issue by proposing marriage to Kitty Pride. Thus doing what many adolescent readers of Excalibur wanted to do every time they saw Kitty Pride on page. Disappointing a girl? Oh, oh, harsh. Damn. (laughs) So anyway, as I restore my shattered adolescent ego, yeah, the next issue, okay, you made a note that you wanted to talk about the cover, and you totally should. Right. Oh, this is what I think of as sort of part of the fundamental set of the pantheon of the best Alan Davis covers and sort of the definitive Alan Davis Excalibur covers. We've got the feet of a giant, his club hanging overhead. Below the club, between the feet, Captain Britain is facing off against a normal-sized police officer, hands on hips, demanding, What palace guard? And so I like this for a couple reasons, as I do with most of my favorite Alan Davis covers. It's a funny gag on its own, and it also describes something that really happens in the issue. And it's got a word balloon in it. I miss word balloons on covers. You occasionally see those these days, but it's usually very rare, and I suspect a very deliberate choice to be that kind of a throwback cover. Vertigo did a whole thing a while ago where the cover of each issue was the story's first page, which was interesting. That's a cool idea. What Captain Britain is posing in and what we see him posing in once we open the issue is his brand new costume. Well, brand new to him. This had originally belonged to the late Captain Marshall of this world, presumably, you know, the Captain Britain of this particular Earth. 
So it's not a straight up flag anymore. It's still got the red, white and blue colors that were on the British flag inspired costume before. And it's still evocative of the British flag. But uh, rumor has it one of the reasons that Alan Davis switched it was that the old costume was a real pain to draw. And this is much easier. It's more just like triangles rather than a bunch of parallel lines overlapping in weird ways. The woman fitting him also informs him that it will hold the British Isles energy for longer, too, which will take care of the kinds of problems he faced when he was in New York. Apparently, this is what happens to Captain Britain when he's away from Britain for too long. He starts to lose his powers. They are fundamentally geographically tied to the British Isles. So this is weird because this mystery of where Captain Britain's powers and where Meghan's control over her powers went unfolded over multiple, multiple issues. And here it's resolved in a single speech bubble, which I actually kind of enjoy that anticlimax because sometimes things do turn out to be simple. One of the things I enjoy about the cross-time caper is the difference between the things that the people on different Earths take for granted as common sense. So, you know, Kitty and Alistair are marveling at this mystical, magical world. We get some great Alan Davis art of this very magical-looking but still modern Britain. When the Queen Mother arrives, who we immediately recognize as an older version of Saturnine. Or Courtney Ross or Satire 9 or that same blonde lady with the swoopy hair who exists across multiple universes. Well, she's older and she's nominally kinder. I don't think she actually necessarily is. And she is here to explain exactly what's going on with the proposal that declining is in fact not an option. And Kitty will in fact now be married to Billy. And that's how it's going to be. As we know, Kitty Pride is perhaps not the first character to say okay when someone tells her what to do, so uh, this doesn't go so well. Kitty is absolutely uninterested. The queen informs her that she will have none of this and teleports the two of them away. Excalibur gives chase and is stopped by an unimposing and slightly nebbish policeman who calls for his lads, the gigantic palace guard, all decked out in helmets and short pants. Right, so hey, there's our cover. In the meantime, Kitty's being held in this big, like, prison cylinder of light kind of thing. That's actually one of my favorite comic book tropes, the cylinder of light that imprisons a person in the center of a room. It's always very impressive, and it seems wildly impractical, but I love it. You know, it's a villain showmanship thing, or hero showmanship thing. And so all of the Queen's various mystical scientists are analyzing her. Skinalysis indicates the youngling has access to the requisite arcane power, but has yet to activate her link with it. The magic is as black as any I've ever seen. But her soul is so equivalently noble, her spirit so fiercely independent, she should be able to wield it untainted. So she's basically clinically awesome. Yeah, kind of. This is taking me straight to Sorcery 101, where there is a very, very little known congenital malady that sometimes affects mostly young women and whose markers are usually purple or color-changing eyes, immediate skills often offset by mild clumsiness and a tendency to immediately derail events around them. And it's one of those really long-running subtle jokes, but basically being an overpowered protagonist, I'm not going to say Mary Sue because I think I've talked before on the show about reasons that I don't like that term and trope, but um, is actually a medical condition and a potentially debilitating one. I in love that, that concept. Yeah. Cal McDonald is great. And Sorcery 101 is actually coming to an end and it's good. I will link to it in the credits. But what the scientists are referring to and what you can see in the diagrams they have on their computers or their magic computers or whatever they are is that Kitty has the soul armor from Ilyana Rasputin, her best friend, her, you know, now de-aged best friend, psychically bonded to her. She still has all of the magic stuff that Ilyana used to use that would transfer to Kitty when Ilyana was disabled. Kind or of dead. Built into her or dead. And so that's something that is a nice slow burn and will eventually become a big deal. But I do like that Chris Claremont occasionally reminds the readers, yeah, this is still a thing. 
Now, the queen will have none of this. She has decided that Kitty is to be a proper princess to marry her grandson. And she also tells Kitty, who keeps insisting that the proposal was a mistake, that in fact, Billy could not have proposed were it not destiny because magic. And that's how it works. And she is going to now reshape Kitty into a more acceptable configuration. Kitty, of course, screams, sending Excalibur charging through the various hordes of giants and stuff to uh, jump on in. And I love that we just get one single Alan Davis panel of like this grand melee. And that's really all it takes to get across just how chaotic the whole thing is before they burst through the doors. I do kind of feel like the cross time caper is an exercise in escalating melees. We'll see more and more of them as we go more and more spectacular versions through a lot of worlds. And what they find when they burst through the door is a perfectly peaceful scene. The queen is there with a tall, you know, very noble looking kitty wearing a long dress. She's suddenly graciously fine with the idea of marrying Billy. Rachel even confirms with her telepathy that this is legit. There are worse fates. I'm happy, Rachel. I think for the first time in my life. Is it a crime to want to be content with that? And on the one hand, it's very obvious that she's brainwashed. On the other hand, like there's enough of the real kitty coming through that it's kind of bittersweet, you know? Yeah, it's an oddly sad moment. And obviously it's wrong and obviously it's not going to work out. But Kitty has been so perpetually frustrated and torn and in mourning and dissatisfied that the fact that this is the cost of a moment of absolute satisfaction is, I think, what stings hardest. Back in the woods, cartoonish dwarves and giants are repairing and repainting the train. Um, they are painting it. Br- they are painting it bright yellow with red highlights, covering up the Nazi insignia. And they offer to let out the big purple dragon while you know talking smack about his previous owner who kept him enslaved. The dragon, as it turns out, is perfectly happy to remain inside because it is deep in conversation with its much smaller compatriot Lockheed. Alistair, meanwhile, is trying to figure out Widget, trying to figure out how to get Widget to send them home again to get them out of this weird world. But without Kitty, he really can't do it. We don't mesh anymore. The wild, rude, rebellious teenage spunk that ignited my own inspiration. It's gone. And so Billy is taking his bride to be around, showing her like the castle playhouse that he spends a bunch of time in, which is kind of adorable and also really gets across just how young this kid is. Yeah, this is not a child who I think maybe should be getting married right now. But we don't really get much time to examine that because trolls attack. Kitty faces and rescues Billy And for a moment, she's her old self again, as and just after she phases and as she's in the fight. Her hair goes a little bit wilder, her dress is slightly unkempt, and then suddenly she's perfect and polished again, and sort of the bland princess kitty. It's a nice show-don't-tell by Alan Davis there, that little, like, uh, imperfecting and perfecting. We see this again that night. Miniature versions of the Shaitan who went after Excalibur before now attack Kitty in her sleep. Excalibur is waiting, as is the queen's daughter, and man... The prince and princess, Billy's parents, are just straight up Diana and Charles. They absolutely are, yeah. They're pretty easy to recognize likenesses. They're incredibly easy to recognize likenesses. And she reluctantly follows Kitty's advice and lets the Queen Mother's spell wear off so that Kitty can fight with her team. As this is going on, Nightcrawler and Megan are flying to where the fairies say that the evil spellcaster behind all of these attacks is. And, of course, it is, in fact, the princess from the ogre's castle who's been sending her monsters after Kitty to kill her. Well, and initially sending her monsters after herself as well, because she, you know, ordered them to capture her so she could then be rescued by this prince she's so desperately in love with. As it turns out, this princess looks a lot like Kitty, too. And is named Kate. And is fairly clearly this world's version of Kitty Pride. And she was in love with Billy and sort of figured... 
that, you know, she could set things up so he'd propose to her by getting herself captured. And then Kitty came and got in the middle of it. And she doesn't care what they do to her. They might as well kill her if she can't be with her true love. And Billy is sufficiently overcome by the strength of her ardor to apologize and propose to her instead. And I think that this is a terrible basis for a romantic relationship. I uh, I would agree. I mean, you know, it really takes all kinds. I'm certainly not one to judge unconventional relationship styles, but maybe don't, you know, try to kill people with shaitans and ogres and deceive them in order to have some dude you like propose to you. Manipulation and murder. They're the new flowers and candy. Um, <laughs> the queen is fine with this, and she thinks to herself that this was, in fact, her plan all along. She knew of Kate from the start. She sent Billy in that direction. And she's basically been manipulating things ever since, which, again, is not a good way to start a romantic relationship. I mean, at least it's like cross-dimensionally consistent. Like if she's this world Saturnine, well, Saturnine definitely does that kind of thing. But Saturnine is smart. And what we're seeing here is like some Bluth level circular reasoning. (laughs) This is like she's going to go back to her room and explain that she has to finish the rest of this vodka because it goes bad if you leave it out. Okay, imagining Lucille Bluth as Saturnine, I'm just going to do that from now on. And then they're all going to call each other chickens, and it's just going to go downhill from there. (laughs) Yeah, forget Arrested Westeros. We need, like, Arrested Excalibur. So every time, you know, we have a moment of an inadvisable relationship, I feel like no touching is going to start becoming a thing. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. They don't allow dragons in here. (laughs) Right. So anyway, the next issue. Now, we do start out still in this medieval world, but I want to talk about the cover. We're going to talk about a lot of covers because Excalibur just has great covers, and they're great tone setters for the stories within. They are, again, just some of the best cover craft, some of the best mood setting, and some of the best advertisement as cover that I've ever seen. Yeah, so with this one, with number 14, we have Excalibur on the right side of the cover, facing off against some various Avengers characters, but it's a wraparound cover, so if you open it up, there's just these endless sort of increasingly weird superheroes and supervillains behind them. Like, there's a Loki who has Thor's hammer, there's a pudgy Quicksilver, there's Captain America who's also Deathlock, there's the Silver Surfer who's riding a skateboard wearing a helmet and pads instead. There's a Namor who's exactly the same as his normal version, but he has diving fins for feet. This cover is actually an homage to John Byrne's old covers for the deluxe editions of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, which would have like a whole bunch of characters running across the cover. And so it's a nice little reference, homage, parody, whatever of that whole thing. Well, and it's not the last sort of wink and nod to Byrne that we're going to see in this arc, but first, a royal betrothal. Yes, indeed. So there were throngs of cheering masses in the streets. You know, Vikings with sunglasses, ogres wearing anthrax shirts, Thor and the Black Knight, various gnomes, various sheiks, you know, just your usual crowd of onlookers. Prince Charles corners Brian with questions about the science of the 616, while Alistair and Rachel dance, sending a very frustrated kitty huffing off through a wall. And Kurt asks Megan to dance, sending Megan into her blue form that she turns into when she's sort of enthralled with Kurt, and Brian into a knowing scowl. Do you both believe me so thick I wouldn't notice? Okay, so I'm torn here because, you know, Kurt's maybe being inappropriate, but Brian kind of was the one that messed up the relationship in the first place. Kurt is not being remotely inappropriate. Kurt is being the friend who tries to step in when, for example, Megan is standing around languishing because she wants to dance and Brian won't dance with her. But Kurt's stepping in all sexy-like. But he's not acting on it. Like, they're flirting, and that's part of their friendship, and they've obviously got things for each other, but they're not really taking it to the next level. And frankly, Brian is terrible. So I have fairly strong feelings about Brian and Megan's relationship, especially at this stage, because Megan is basically coming into this as a total innocent and as someone who has no experience in adult romantic relationships. Everything she knows about how romance works 
comes from daytime television. Ah, so you're thinking campsite rules. I am extremely thinking campsite rules. Like, this is straightforward. Brian is the more experienced, older member of the couple. He's also the one in a position of both literal and relative power. I mean, Megan can totally kick his ass in a fight. I mean, she's a demigod, basically. Yeah, but she also basically defers to him on everything. She has no confidence He is used to asserting authority, which, again, she absolutely defers to. He knows this. He's set her up in a situation where she is functionally completely dependent on him, then basically just ignores her for long periods of time. He's being a complete douche here. And honestly, I think what Kurt is doing is perfectly reasonable and perfectly honorable. He's not trying to break up their relationship. He's not trying to seduce Megan. He's just basically trying to step in and do the things that a friend would, you know, step in and do if someone's partner wasn't doing them. Like, take her dancing. But he's doing it so sexily. It's like how a master martial artist is considered to be armed with a deadly weapon, even if they don't have any, like, weapons on them. Kurt's armed with a deadly sexy. No, no. See, I think that is an entirely spurious argument. That's saying that Megan and Kurt have no control over their actions. And the actions are what are critical here. You know, it's not a question of whether they find each other attractive and gaze into each other's eyes. It's a question of whether they then step into the space that would be defined as infidelity, which it's questionable even exists since Brian has been so reluctant to define his relationship with Megan at this point. Hmm. So basically what Kurt is doing is maybe nebulously violating the bro code. And that's the only boundary violation that's happening here other than Captain Britain being a douche. Well, regardless, it does make for some excellent soapy, soapy soap opera, which we, of course, need in any sort of an X-Men book. So kudos to Kurt and Brian and Megan for that. Kitty, who has likewise had enough of this bullshit, heads off to the train where she finds Widget eating the new upholstery. (laughs) Damn it, Widget. It's what Widget does. She is followed closely by Rachel, who comes storming in, followed by this world's Nigel Frobisher, who apparently is pretty terrible in any world. Oh, Nigel Frobisher, what an impressive, sleazy misogynist he is. Yeah, he's kind of the worst, although Rachel responds here to his lewd thoughts by telekinetically tarring and feathering him, which strikes me as a fairly extreme response. Uh, It's pretty intense, yeah. It is. I mean, its relative lethality is very much relative to the materials. I looked this up because I had concerns. Hey, I looked up the history of the spelling of judgment, so I'm not one to, uh, you know, judge. So tarring and feathering is one of those things that exists primarily as a social consequence and is used to enforce social status and social status rules and sort of normalcy. And it's anywhere from really embarrassing to extremely cruel and unusual capital punishment, largely depending on what type of tar is used. If it's pine tar, that's fluid and sticky at much cooler and safer temperatures. If it's basically the kind of tar that we associate with road work, yeah, it's pretty much going to kill anyone it happens to. And either way, especially in the United States, it has some really, really specific implications. It's associated really closely, and this I already knew, but it's especially in the 20th century U.S., it's associated almost exclusively with lynching. So, yeah, Rachel, maybe go in a different direction with that one. Don't do that. Oh, man, don't, that's... Don't. That's way darker than I thought it was. Yeah, I don't think it was actually intended to be. I think it was just supposed to be something undignified and goofy, and then I ruined it with research and context. Ruining it with research, the J. Rachel Edidin story. Yeah, I mean, more ruining it with context. And I'm going to do that again in another issue, by the way. Huzzah! (laughs) But not with regards to tarring and feathering, but once again with regards to Nigel Frobisher, who is, you know, the gift that keeps on giving of sorts, kind of. 
So Widget's eyes get big and uneven as it absorbs Rachel's energy the rest of Excalibur has followed, and away the train goes with a zap. And they arrive back at their own lighthouse. Like, hey, they're home. It's awesome. Except maybe not. The tide is way too low. This can't be home. And Captain Britain uses science to quickly estimate that they are in deep shit. There is a tidal wave coming in in just a moment, and it's going to be about a thousand feet tall. So Phoenix thinks quickly and psychically cocoons each of them in these sort of yellow, glowy coffin things including herself, as the wave hits. And I gotta say, the way Davis draws the catastrophic impact of the tidal wave, he really sells it. Like, that does not look like something you would want to get hit with at all. The tidal wave carries them in their cocoons, presumably across the ocean, because when they finally land and break out of them, Rachel is gone, but they are met by the one and only Rick Jones. Sidekick to superheroes and honorary Avenger. Welcome, Excalibur, to Marvel Parody World. Hope you survive the experience. That was spontaneous. That was not on the outline. So Rick Jones, as we mentioned in the cold open, is basically everybody's sidekick. I think he's probably most known for being the Hulk sidekick, but maybe not. He's been with a lot of superheroes. Yeah, he started out with the Hulk and he's sidekicked for a lot of superheroes. He's had his superpowers at a couple different points. He was a rock star. He's kind of the Archie of the Marvel Universe in a lot of ways. I was actually going to say the Jimmy Olsen of the Marvel Universe. That too. Has he ever been turned into a giant turtle, though? I'm going to say probably. My favorite Rick Jones twist, though, is actually from a Justice League Unlimited episode where they get shunted to a sort of fake idyllic 1950s version of the world that's just stuck in stasis with 50s versions of themselves and their teenage sidekick, who's very much Rick Jones. Oh, interesting. I always figured he was supposed to be Jimmy Olsen, but I think you're right. No, he's, he's more like no, Rick Jones. He's, he's way more Rick Jones. I don't know if Rick Jones had a more direct DC equivalent, but basically the collective sidekick to the Justice League, who's also kind of their gopher and the kid who gets to come along on all their adventures and totally save the day every time. Rick Jones is also frequently an exposition monkey, as he is here, explaining that the Avengers took Rachel, but only had room for one cocoon in their Quinjet. He flies Excalibur towards them in his own Quinjet, which he just sort of happens to have because he's Rick Jones, and of course he's got that kind of stuff, and 7,000 signal watches, and all of that. Megan and Kitty decide that, you know, they're going to use Rick's scissors. Which are a Stark International transistorized multipurpose cosmic charged omniphasic cutting device. To cut their dresses short, you know, and make them more mobility friendly. They're still all princessed up. Kitty complains that her poofy dress cut off makes her look like a cheerleader, which is sort of some weirdly specific foreshadowing for a later Excalibur arc. And then they nearly collide with and come to a brief stop on what appears to be a giant mass of land, but is in fact a giant mass of Ant-Man. Right. Hank Pym is here and his Goliath, guys. He's just been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Apparently that's what the tidal wave came from, was him taking a step in the ocean. And he tells them that, Every breath I take, every move I make, triggers a new disaster. So that's a random police reference uh, in this dude talking about his tragedy. And Namor suddenly appears with a giant gun and says that he's destroyed Atlantis and done terrible things and he shoots that, him. That Hank has destroyed Atlantis, not that Namor has destroyed Atlantis and done terrible things. Although presumably Namor has also done terrible things. Well, presumably that too. And they are catapulted by the new tidal wave that results from Goliath falling into the ocean to New York City. And boy, howdy, this sure is New York City. New York City in this universe is a superhero, supervillain free-for-all. It's one giant, massive enormous melee heroes and villains are fighting like all of them like every square inch is a hero villain fight of some sort deathlock captain america pops up briefly to explain it's what happens when you get so caught up in 
acts of vengeance that you forget the human costs involved. Okay, so Captain America as Deathlock is clearly referencing the upcoming Acts of Vengeance event where different superheroes fight their non-standard supervillains, the supervillains figuring that they can take them by surprise this way. Yeah, he's just instructed them to all go fight other people's supervillains and mix it up because that's what they're supposed to be doing for reasons that remain nebulous. But at the same time, seeing Captain America all Deathlocked out, Deathlock is basically like a zombie cyborg super soldier is really genuinely tragic. Like, Davis manages to sell that in the art and Claremont in the dialogue enough that in this profoundly ridiculous story, there's a bit of, oh, man. As the fights continue in the background, the team splits up to head to all of the various superhero bases in town, try to figure out which one Rachel might have landed at. So Captain Britain and Rick Jones go to ask Iron Man where Rachel is, and he says in the midst of his own fight, uh, you know, with Reed Richards. Meanwhile, in the background, Modok is smashed to the ground with egg yolks spilling out Humpty Dumpty style. Captain Britain punches the attacking Hulk, who bursts into tears as a web-footed Namor carries off the Scarlet Witch chased by the rotund Quicksilver we saw on the cover. Yeah, and like throughout every single scene for the rest of this issue, there's just like utter chaos of all these bizarre versions of different characters just sort of fighting for seemingly no reason. And it's wonderful, like... I don't know. This issue takes me twice as long to read as most Excalibur issues just because I'm staring at all the little details in the art. Yeah, it's an ongoing scavenger hunt. And in the next stage of it, Nightcrawler and Megan head to Damage Coordination Headquarters. Right, not Damage Control, but Damage Coordination because it's this world. There's a long complaints line mostly populated by dead characters and Mysterio is in charge of wardrobe and offers them all new costumes since they're still all dressed up in medieval formal wear. Kurt gets his usual, but Megan gets a new off-the-shoulder green jumpsuit with a stylized M across the torso. That's what she's going to wear for the rest of the series and for a long time after. Yeah, I think she wears that green jumpsuit right up until she takes on the Gloriana persona in the Captain Britain and MI5 series, which is like way later. Doctor Strange, meanwhile, is looking at one of the most uh, expansive and garish outfits I've ever seen and after a moment of contemplation requests something a trifle less restrained. I love it. It's like this orange and yellow and pink caped and cowled and tutued hooded outfit. Beyond him, there's a line of wolverines outside a casting room. We've got the Meltdown era with the amazing sort of antennae hair patch, you know, the original costume and a number of others studying their lines and saying down the line, I'm the best there. As they're reading the script for I'm the best at what I do, et cetera, et cetera. That was actually a panel that has just stuck with me ever since the first time I read that issue. For some reason, I found it hilarious when I was a kid, and I still do. Finally, Megan and Nightcrawler are directed to a control room. Anything comes up here, those two grab it, turn it into the catalyst for the latest cataclysmic cosmic cross-continuity caper. And of course, in this room is Chris Claremont himself, surrounded by a bunch of lingerie-wearing Hellfire Club ladies, and John Byrne hanging out with She-Hulk, wearing respectively t-shirts with an X and an A on them. It's a massive control room, and these two are, you know, at the heart of it. We mentioned that you'd be seeing a number of Byrne references in there, and... Yeah, this is sort of the shameless self-parody world. So Alistair Stewart and Kitty themselves are going to the Baxter building where the Fantastic Four are, and they take a number to go see Reed Richards, but there is a very, very, very long line. Right, their number is 10 to the 23rd power. So I looked this up, and that is between a sextillion and a septillion, or in Europe, which has a different numbering system, between a trilliard and a quadrillion. I had not been aware that there was a different naming system for large numbers. That's really unsettling to me. It's really strange, especially because quadrillion means one thing in the U.S. system and another thing in the European system, and that could get super confusing. 
Now, they head in line. They're right behind a Dalek whom Alistair assures he's never met. I really love that. Like, the Dalek references Alistair Stewart as a Doctor Who in-joke, and Alistair himself doesn't. Yeah, man, this also really makes me want to see Kitty and Donna Noble team up and just take no shit from anyone. That would be amazing. Kitty Pride and Donna Noble? Okay, right? I don't even know what medium this would be, if it was like a television show or a movie or a comic or whatever, or just real life. Just have it happen in real life. I feel good about that. Or just a series of really short, like, YouTube next episode teasers. Oh, that would be great. Like, don't show the episodes themselves, but just show the little snippets like that. Right, and the end would always have them back to back like buddy cops. We keep coming back to buddy cops, apparently. Because buddy cops are great. <laughs> So anyway, the rest of Excalibur shows up to meet them at this point, just as the Fantastic Four is opening Rachel's cocoon, which I'm pretty sure is an homage to Fantastic Four number 286, where the Fantastic Four opened, like, Phoenix's cocoon. I mean, it's also Phoenix, but Jean's cocoon. Like, yeah, Jean Grey's cocoon. I think right it's before. actually the same dialogue and everything. It may very well be. And of course, as this happens, the Phoenix Force bursts out and destroys the top of the building, just in time for Galactus to show up. So, listeners, you may have noticed that as we're going through some of these stories, it's sort of a, and this happens, and this happens, and this happens, and this happens, because that's the pace of this issue. That's the pace of the cross-time caper in general, but especially this issue, it's just so, like, frantic and barreling forward, and that's a large part of its charm. Well, this issue is basically tonally set up to be a parody of the chaos of crossover events. There's a lot of stuff that happens very pointedly, in very quick succession, on a very grand scale, and for no obvious reason. And that's part of the point, and usually commented directly on. Now, Phoenix points out, hey, Galactus, you said you would spare Earth. You promised Reed Richards. And Galactus responds that, well, that was a different Reed and a different Earth, so this one's pretty screwed. Which implies to me that, like, maybe there was only supposed to be one Galactus across the multiverse, just like there's only one Phoenix? Possibly Galactus is definitely not my forte. Well, there was that Ultimate Hunger miniseries. Is that the one where Galactus is human for a day and ends up trying to eat a pool ball? Because I vaguely remember that being a thing that actually happens in a comic at um, one point. N- it sounds right. N- no, no, it was a really dark story where 616 Galactus went over to the Ultimate Universe and did a bunch of horrible stuff. He doesn't just, like, hang out with Ben Grimm and learn about humanity? I mean, that would be pretty great, but, uh, no, no, it was that, the Ultimate that Universe. That was a real story, and I assume that someone listening will know what it is, and I'm actually me about it, and I would love it if you did, because I'd love to find it again, because I remember it being pretty delightful. <laughs> well, Anyway, since Galactus is about to destroy this planet, every hero and villain attacks, and Galactus tells Excalibur, you gotta get out of here, this is not your world, and then he explains his motivations. Of all the worlds, in all the infinite dimensions, this representation of Soul's third planet has grown too silly to be allowed to exist. <laughs> I love that so much. First of all, it's marvelously, marvelously meta. Second, the meta goofiness of that justification is itself super silly. And it's also just a great way to resolve a story. It's a very Monty Python. Nope, too silly. Next. (laughs) Exactly. And so Excalibur does manage to like telekinetically fly really, really fast away from the fact that the world is exploding and get back to their train in time to teleport away. And to jumpstart Widget just as the world is blown apart. Leaving only Galactus on the shattered husk of the Earth along with, not surprisingly, the Impossible Man. Galactus sternly warns the Impossible Man not to do it again, but as Galactus leaves, we see that the Impossible Man has already started as a single voice calls out from the shattered Earth. Hey, anybody need a partner? No, Rick. Nobody needs a partner. 
So that issue right there, that's very cross-time caper, like kind of inconsequential, a shit ton of fun. Now, there is, however, some plot going on in the background because throughout all of these issues, there's been some stuff going on in Brighton. And it's been going on with our very favorite Excalibur antagonists of all time, the glorious, the fantastic, the resounding, the elephantine, the multidimensional Technet. Oh, Technet, our favorite interdimensional cross-time bounty hunters. Unfortunately, they are currently in the employ, or about to be in the employ, of one Nigel Frobisher, the Nigel Frobisher of 616, who is himself about to be in for more than he bargained for. Yeah, he's just wandering down the street and runs into the various alien-looking folks of Technet. He recognizes Body Bag and manages to fend Body Bag off, but he's immediately set upon by the others. Yeah, and they all use their various powers, like Waxwork sort of strings him into putty, China Doll shrinks him, Joy Boy manifests his greatest desire by making him half a supermanly man and half Courtney Ross herself, since somebody comments that he wants to both dominate her and be her. I think this bears some discussion. This is another one of those points where there's something whose intention seems clear in the artwork, but that falls into some really, really unfortunate cultural tropes because... What we see him drawn as in that hybrid form is basically every really unkind cultural parody and satire of trans women. Yeah, that's true. I would agree that I don't think that was the intention, but it's certainly reminiscent. It's reminiscent, and the idea that that representation should specifically be this ridiculous thing and the butt of a joke is itself kind of a, I mean, it's not even just kind of, is itself a pretty significant problem. And this is going to be revisited at various points, and I think never particularly better than this, unfortunately, and never really explored in any significant way as a trans narrative or from Nigel's perspective. Finally, he is dumped at Gatecrasher's feet, transformed back, and explains that he is here to engage TechNet to rescue one James Braddock from Dr. Crocodile. Now, before we talk about Jamie Braddock and Doc Croc, I do want to point out that the reason that Gatecrasher was here in Brighton is that she was negotiating a deal with the city council to use her, you know, TechNet stuff to make the weather really nice as long as she could have the dock at Brighton as a base where it's still raining and where the family of lizard people from that one story where all the dimensional portals were opening and they were in a museum. And they're still here touristing around. And so they comment that it's the first good weather that they've seen since they arrived. I love the fact that they're just sort of around. I love the fact that like Claremont and Davis remember that they exist. For a series as wildly scattered and frenetic as Excalibur, there is a lot of continuity and especially a lot of running gags. Exactly, yeah. So, right, TechNet is on Earth right now because they can't go home until they captured Phoenix, which has been their mission since, like, I think Excalibur Special Edition number one, The Sword is Drawn. But they will happily take uh, Nigel's job because, well, they're bounty hunters and they like money. So Nigel, whose standard appearance is gradually growing to dovetail more and more with Courtney's, he's now blonde, he wears you know, a white suit, shows TechNet his briefing holograph. The mission is to rescue James Braddock, older brother of Captain Britain, from Joshua Ndingi who is Dr. Crocodile. We last saw James Braddock in Captain Britain, Volume 2, Numbers 9 through 10. Yeah, so Dr. Crocodile, he was a member of the Resources Control Executive, the RCX, along with Gabriel and Michael, if you remember them from our Captain Britain coverage. And he worked with the Warpies, the children who were sort of mutated by the Jasper's Warp in that series, and ended up getting horribly burned by one of them. So the RCX, of course, made him a cyborg. And he ended up quitting the RCX and returning to his homeland of Mabengawi. Now, Jamie at this point was a rich playboy who had gotten into crime to pay off debts. Eventually, his criminal enterprises grew to include robbery, murder, and the slave trade. 
So Captain Britain went to rescue his brother, only to have Dr. Crocodile send him into a drug-fueled vision of the stuff that Jamie had really been up to. And so even though Jamie was his brother, after seeing all of the horrible things Jamie had done, Captain Britain said, screw it, Dr. Crocodile, you can have this guy. I don't even care if you torture him to death. Gatecrasher is somewhat less concerned with the subtle ethics of the situation. She's her usual cordial but brutal self during this meeting as she strangles Thug, who's trying to throw a cake at Yap, her buddy, who rides on her shoulders, while aiming at her. You know, it's the usual thing where TechNet can't really get through a meeting without sort of slapstick violent comedy going on, but they will indeed take the job. Meanwhile on another Earth, Excalibur in a stagecoach flees a gang of cinema-stereotypical American Indians wearing British police and soldier hats. A genre-appropriate Rachel is clad in buckskins, Kurt as a saloon girl. Kitty, on the other hand, is dressed as a furry monster, Megan has transformed into a frog woman, and Alistair Stewart is stripped to his briefs and tied to a very cartoonish totem pole. And yeah, we'll see similar brief glimpses into Excalibur's travels throughout this issue, and that's what I love about it. It's a TechNet, you know, heist mission thing, and Excalibur's not the main character, so the fact that we just cut in and out of these various worlds that they're in, only really getting to imagine what bizarre adventures got them to this point, I love that. It works so well for Excalibur. Like, I almost wish that every issue would be like this. I think we could stand without some unfortunate cultural misrepresentations that are going on throughout, but... Well, the same could be said, sadly, of most comics at the end of the 80s, or, you know, in general. It's frustrating to see those bits because I so want to unreservedly like this. Like, it's, it's a comic that I love so much overall that it's frustrating to periodically have to stop and say, except. So I think I may be harder on those moments than I might be in any other book. Now, Technet themselves have made it to Mubengawi and are, at first, in Gatecrasher's usual style, knocking politely. Good evening. I am Gatecrasher. You are unjustifiably holding a prisoner I've come to rescue. The guard who has opened the window immediately slams it. I take it then you've no intention of cooperating? More's the pity. That means we'll have to do this the old-fashioned way. I love that the old-fashioned way means teleporting. Well, it means teleporting and just beating the hell out of everyone with bizarre alien superpowers. Yeah, but she specifically says we'll have to do this the old-fashioned way as they teleport, which is just a really good visual and dialogue juxtaposition. TechNet remains lovely, Gatecrasher especially remains lovely. And so they do, in fact, make it to Dr. Crocodile, who's got Jamie Braddock tied up, including his mustache tied up to this weird frame, torturing him with, I don't know, weird mystical stuff, I guess? Yes, he is using ambiguous mystical stuff to torture Braddock, who is stuck in a rictus grin, just repeating, I feel happy, I feel happy, I feel happy. And as Gatecrasher is about to uh, try to take out Dr. Crocodile and free Jamie, Dr. Crocodile blows this weird powder into her face in a scene that's going to be very familiar if you've read the Captain Britain issues that Dr. Crocodile showed up in before. Meanwhile, on another Earth, on a dark and stormy night in a sinister castle laboratory, mad scientists labor over Rachel and Alistair who are strapped to operating tables in preparation for a brain swap. Until a vampire kitty, werewolf Megan, and a surprisingly normal Kurt barge in with armloads of rare reagents and demand that the team be restored to its original state, particularly Captain Britain, who is currently a duck. Each of these meanwhiles could be its own cold open. They make me so freaking happy. I know, right? So we then get some narration for where Gatecrasher's gotten off to. Africa, as it probably never was, but as our hopes and dreams tell us it ought to be. 
And Gatecrasher and Yap witness poachers slaughtering idyllic nature around them, people starving, free aid, food and medicine destroyed so it can be sold to people. Wait, wait, this is not what my hopes and dreams tell me that Africa ought to be. Well, it was before all that horrible shit happened. Yeah, but still. And then Gatecrasher sees Jamie Braddock behind it all, wearing a tuxedo, smoking a cigar and looking very satisfied. He turns into Saturnine, who tells Gatecrasher that she has failed and in turn turns into a crocodile telling her that she always blames others for said failure. And Gatecrasher wakes up strangling Doc Croc. And yeah, this is almost exactly what Dr. Crocodile did to show Captain Britain all of the horrible stuff that Jamie did, which ultimately convinced Captain Britain that, you know, Jamie shouldn't be free, that he should be suffering. He tells Gatecrasher, There is honor in you, Gatecrasher, and even courage, albeit of the most reluctant kind, but not in those you serve. You have been deceived. Meanwhile, on another Earth, Excalibur tries to glean the details of their world and determines that they have at last been returned to the 616. Alas, the police don't recognize Captain Comrade, Carmen Miranda, a carnival barker, and a number six from The Prisoner, as respectively Captain Britain, Shadowcat, Nightcrawler, and Alistair Stewart. Worse yet, before clarification is possible, a rude awakening muddles Megan and Phoenix's consciousnesses, resulting in a sudden flare of power that kickstarts Wichit and ports the train back into the unknown. Now, Yap, Gatecrasher's teleporting little monkey lizard dude, panics at this point and teleports them all away, which means that Jamie Braddock is no longer tied up and is free. Right, he teleports the whole shebang, but not the setup, not the things that had been restraining Jamie. So they've got Jamie and they've also got Dr. Crocodile with them. And we see a bit of the world the way Jamie Braddock sees it, and here's where things start getting super creepy. I mean, he was creepy before with the I feel happy, I feel happy thing, but he basically just sees the world as this opaque yellow background, and everything in it is made of strings. And occasionally he'll just reach out and just play with some of those strings and see how they break and reform. He's completely out of touch with reality, but at the same time sees it on almost a more fundamental level. And is nigh omnipotent. Man, I think we've talked before about the dangerous British reality warpers named Jamie, but I feel like every time we cover this, I'm just going to be side-eyeing the host of the British History Podcast for a few weeks. Yeah, because we had James Jaspers, now Jamie Braddock. Maybe Jamie Jeffers is going to warp reality and destroy us all. I mean, I feel like mostly he would warp reality and make history be taught more accurately in schools, but... Yeah, that's probably true. But regardless, this is going to be a big deal later. Jamie Braddock is going to end up being a really important character. Now, Gatecrasher, of course, is furious at Yap's teleportation, and so sends TechNet to recapture Jamie Braddock, and it doesn't go well. Jamie reaches out and tugs the massive strings that make up Body Bag, crushing him instantly. And then for the others, including Scatterbrain, who tries to scatter Jamie's brain, and because I guess it's already so scattered, gets hers scattered instead, which brings Jamie out of his reverie into the ability to perceive what everybody else is perceiving. Technet tries to take him down in turn, and one by one he uses their powers against them. There's this four-panel sequence that's just, like, chilling, showing in the foreground Jamie Braddock's face just with his head tilted sharply to the side, kind of grinning maniacally and blankly, and Joy Boy's behind him, trying to do what Joy Boy does, which is to manifest his greatest desire in order to incapacitate him, and then just thwuds out of the sky onto the ground as Jamie grins even bigger. With some very specific implications about what Jamie's greatest desire was at that moment. Yeah, Jamie Braddock is terrifying. He's omnipotent, like so many villains, but he just doesn't really have any investment in the well-being of anything because he doesn't really see anything as more or less real than anything else. Well, at this point, he's also still convinced that he's trapped in a dream. That too, yeah. Now, Dr. Crocodile's like, okay, this guy cannot be allowed to go free, 
and attacks. And like this issue has been really silly, but this part is deadly serious. Meanwhile, on another Earth, shunted once again from their home dimension, Excalibur emerges in a wasteland where Megan has taken up the mantle of Captain Britain following the death of Brian Braddock and now keeps vigil over a deserted world that she insists is not dead, but merely slumbering. And Nigel Frobisher at this point shows up because presumably Dr. Crocodile's attack has not so much worked. Nigel beckons Jamie into a limo, offering him dominion over half the world. Now, it's interesting to point out at this point that Claremont had planned for Satire 9, Dr. Crocodile, the Vixen, and Jamie Braddock to all come together for this giant climactic battle. That was where Excalibur was going. You know, after the Crosstime Caper, this was supposed to be like the big overarching plot, but Claremont was off the book by the time that happened. Although, interestingly, Alan Davis, when he took over writing, actually did pick up some of those plot lines and take them in a slightly different direction. So, you know, the more you know. Technet, for their part, are perfectly satisfied. They are rolling in money and relaxing happily, except for Thug, who's angry because of what he's found in the bathtub. That being a tiny cyborg crocodile, the implication being that Jamie just, you know, rewrote Dr. Crocodile. Again, dude is so creepy. He's omnipotent and just doesn't care. Meanwhile, Excalibur's meanderings seem to have taken a turn for the worse as we view a blasted planetscape and on it a smashed and graffitied train with Captain Britain, Megan, and Widget half buried in its wreckage. And so, yeah, that's where we'll cut off for now. We still have a lot of cross-time caper to go. But so far, we've seen utterly silly, we've seen fantastical, we've seen super dark and creepy, and that's basically the tone we're going to see going forward. All of those things, but with a pretty heavy emphasis on the silly. Yeah, it's worth adding that what's going to come next, what is teased as coming next, is Kurt Wagner, Warlord. Which is probably my favorite part of the cross-time caper. I yeah, like it a lot. we are going full-on John Carpenter, kids. Okay, so having made a dent in this giant storyline, let's answer some questions. David Patton asks us via email... My favorite X-Man is Nightcrawler, both Swashbuckler and Priest. My favorite New Mutant is Magic. Given that information, Miles, what subgenre or subgenres of metal should I explore? Who would be a great entry band for said genre? Okay, so I'll preface this by saying that I am by no means an expert on metal. Like, I enjoy it, and I've listened to a fair bit of it, but I'm not like a, a music guy. I'm a comics guy. That being said, I will do what I can. So, based on your love of both sides of Nightcrawler and of magic, I'm going to guess that you enjoy, in your stories, intense emotions, both positive and negative, and operatically epic plot lines from Nightcrawler's dueling spiritual and adventurous selves, his grim and gleeful natures, to Ileana Rasputin's passionate tragedy, plus both enthusiasm and darkness. So, that being said, you have a number of genre options you could go to. If you wanted to go for, say, melodic death metal— that mixes sort of uh, delicate melodic aspects of uh, metal and also this sort of powerful, loud, heavy sound. So you could check out, say, Dark Tranquility. Or if you wanted to go more in the melodic direction than that, you could check out Symphonic Metal, which is still very much epic, but a little bit less harsh. So Nightwish and Epica, I think that could get across, you know, some of Ileana's less hellacious storylines and some of Kurt's sort of purer ones. Or if you did want to go in a darker direction and uh, occasionally a cheesy in a good way direction as well, you could check out Gothic Metal. Typo Negative, it's really hard to go wrong with Typo Negative if you're getting into that. Now, one of my personal favorites is Power Metal. That's sort of more positive, it's fast and optimistic. That would definitely get to the playful sides of both Nightcrawler and Magic. Is that the genre that you described as being about dragons and feelings? Dragons and friendship is typically the way I describe it, okay. but yes, that. Blind Guardian and Hammerfall, two excellent examples. Most people have heard of Dragon Force as well. But what I eventually settled on for this question, what I think you should check out if you like Nightcrawler and Magic, you should check out Progressive Metal, Prog Metal. 
It's complex. It runs the gamut of style and emotion, really across both of those spectrums. Some songs can evoke a story that's as complex and deep as Inferno itself. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot of darkness and beauty and just all of the things. So uh, Dream Theater, but most importantly, Opeth would be great places to start there. So there you go. I hope that's helpful and not just a whole lot of words. In the meantime, John Derrick asks via email, Has it ever been explained why there was only one working parachute available when Scott and Alex Summers were tossed out of their parents' plane? The answer is yes, in a wide variety of ways. The details of that particular plane crash change at least incrementally in almost every retelling, and there are a lot of them. Sometimes there's a second parachute that's already caught fire or turns out to be otherwise damaged, which is, I think, probably the best explanation offered. Sometimes there are two parachutes and the parents are planning to follow but want to make sure the kids get to safety first and then themselves don't have time. Sometimes there is just one, which, yeah, is grossly irresponsible. And then sometimes it's X-Men evolution and narrative and causal logic get chucked out of the plane right along with the Summers kids. Congratulations to listeners David and Allison who tied the knot this week. So David requested a few of our favorite romantic moments from X-Men. Here's what we've got for you. Okay, so obviously you got to start with Uncanny X-Men number 137, Scott and Jean charging forth into battle in the Dark Phoenix saga. Speaking of Scott and Jean, there's also always X-Men volume 2 number 30, their wedding. And also in X-Men volume 2, there's Gambit and Rogue's final kiss right before the Amicron crystal explodes and blows up the world and turns into the Age of Apocalypse. I don't recall the issue number for that, but it would be toward the end of Legion Quest. And I know this is a super weird choice, but one of my favorite relationship moments in X-Men is Scott and Emma's argument in the middle of a firefight in Astonishing X-Men number 21. It's a really good encapsulation of the way they relate to each other, and it just rings super true for me. I really love that bit. And actually, in a couple of the issues we're going to be covering very soon, there's this really wonderful domestic moment between Mystique and Destiny, just them hanging out after Destiny's had a weird vision in the morning and like drinking coffee together and getting dressed and getting ready for the day and getting ready to, you know, take down Muriel like you do. So congratulations, David and Allison, many happy returns, and may your marriage be blessed with not a fraction of the eventfulness of any of the relationships we described, and not beset by the perils of a shared superhero universe. Now, we are a listener-supported podcast, and one of the rewards that goes to people who support us at a certain level is thanks on the air in a variety of fictional voices, so I think I'm going to turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. You thought yourself worldly, Kylan Alexander. That you had explored the four corners of the earth and seen what wonders there were to see. Half a ring circus knows better that the greatest marvels of our planet are scarcely even dust against the mysteries of the multiverse. And with that, Jay and Miles explain the X Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast Kaiju Cast. New episodes of Jay and Miles explain the X Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Additionally, check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content. Visual companions to every episode along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is 100% listener-supported if you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free. Check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're going to jump forward to the present and, in fact, even the future of the X-Men. As we talk to writer Charles Soule about Death of X and making mortality matter in a revolving door universe. (laughs) 